How was everybody? <laughs> All of us that didn't get to go on vacation this weekend, here we are, right? Hey, someone left me an assortment of dum-dums up here, which I don't know if that's like a passive-aggressive statement against me or, or what's going on here, but, but there they are. So, uh, I don't know. I can't tell anymore. Um, I don't know if you guys, this time of year, the other day, this is a really dumb story that has nothing to do with... Uh, anything we're going to talk about today. I just, I like talking to you sometimes and, and you're kind of a captive audience right now. So you kind of have to listen to me. So, uh, uh, the other day I, well, for a while now I've been watching, I can't even remember the name of it. I watched these, <laughs> I'm getting so old on Netflix. You know, there's all these kinds of different like things that you can watch. I choose to watch these. One would say boring. I really enjoy them. Shows like these British shows about gardens. And, um, <laughs> I watch them quite often because I think it relaxes me. And, you know, garden in Great Britain is not, it's just like your backyard, right? It's not like vegetables and stuff per se. But um, so I watch these, I watch these shows and I get these like delusions of grandeur that I'm going to go to Lowe's and I'm going to come back and make my backyard look like those backyards. And so the, the other day I told my wife, I said, hey, because we've been watching this show. When I say we, Alicia like reads a magazine and just sits with me while I watch this show. But uh watching the show and I'm like, I'm going to Lowe's tomorrow and I'm going I'm to get some stuff for our backyard. And she's like, okay, baby, you know, whatever you want to do. And I'm like, all right. So I go to Lowe's with this idea in my head that I'm going <laughs> to come back and sculpt my backyard to look like this, just like paradise, right? So I go to Lowe's and it hits me. I really don't know anything about botany or plants or any of this stuff, right? So I grab one of those carts and I just walk up and down the outdoor part of Lowe's and they probably think I'm going to steal something, you know, because I just keep walking back and forth looking at stuff. And uh, I end up, <laughs> what I come home with is two pots about this big and two plants that on the tag literally say plants of steel because you can't kill them, right? <laughs> and I potted those and I, I put them on like, like both sides of our, our screened in porch in the back when you walk in through the back way. And they're like, they're not, I mean, they're like this tall. So like you don't even see them. Like they're just, they're more of a tripping hazard than anything else. And so... Uh, for some reason, if you come over to my house and you go into the back, you'll, you'll notice these, these it was, it's pretty lame is what I'm getting at. So uh, it's kind of humbled this weekend. But um, anyways, another thing is before I, we get into the lesson today and talk, uh, we get the honor and, and privilege to, to celebrate Memorial Day. When I say celebrate, I mean, it's a, it's a Memorial Day for people who've passed away for our freedoms. And um, listen, I don't agree with everything in our culture. I don't agree with everything our government does. I don't agree with, uh, uh, you know, I don't think we ever will, right? Um, but the fact is we live in the most free and beautiful nation on planet Earth. And it's because men and women for, for generations have shed their blood for the, for the freedom that you and I get right now. Not every country has the freedom to sit and have the religious liberties that we have and the civil liberties that we have. And, and um, we are very, very blessed. So I hope this weekend you know, as you get tomorrow off and maybe you're grilling out with friends or family or whatever you do tomorrow, take a minute and just kind of thank God. You know, though our nation is not perfect, it's pretty darn good. And it's because a lot of men and women have sacrificed so we can have the freedoms that we have right now. So, yeah. And, um, yeah, just something to keep in mind. So, Anyways, we have been in the book of Acts for a long time, and um, we're actually getting kind of close to wrapping it up. We're within striking distance now. We're in chapter 25 this week, and we've been in this book for a long time. Now, if you weren't here last week, let me catch up really, really quick. I'm going to really abbreviate it. We've been following a guy named Paul, right? The Apostle Paul. 
He's traveled all around the Mediterranean over what is modern-day Turkey, Greece, spreading the news about Jesus both to Jews and especially to non-Jewish people, okay, going all around this area. He has come back into Israel, and he has not received a very warm welcome. Again, I'm really fast-forwarding. Um, there was a riot that broke out. He was brought into custody. There, custody. there was a plan to assassinate Paul by the Jewish leaders. So he was taken out of Israel into an area called Caesarea, about 60 miles away. He was taken there by the Roman government. And there was kind of a corrupt governor named Felix that presided over Paul's trial, if you will. It was kind of a bogus trial, but presided over this. Never came to a verdict. And so Paul has been on house arrest for two years. And so in that two-year span, a new governor, a guy that we'll talk about today, Festus, comes into power, and he now has to deal with Paul. Now, if you were here last week, there was kind of this brief kind of glimmer of hope with this guy, Felix. He comes in. He wants to talk to Paul about Jesus. So we're like, whoa, maybe this guy's going to become a Christian. It doesn't happen. And the reason why it doesn't happen is because Felix hears from Paul that a life of following Jesus involves righteousness, it involves discipline and self-control, and it involves judgment and accountability. And he didn't want anything to do with that. So we said last week that we're very quick to judge people like Felix, right? How dare he not accept this? But we've done this on some level. I would say most, if not all of us in this room, that sometimes we're very selfish about our faith. We want kind of the fluffy, happy things of Christianity, but we don't want the discipline. We don't want the self-control. We don't want accountability. We don't want to speak of judgment, right? We don't want to speak of heaven and hell. And so sometimes we do this, and we can be sometimes very selfish in our faith. This week, we're going to talk about this. Now, chapter 25 is very, very practical. It's just a history lesson. It's interesting, but it's just pretty straightforward. So what I'm going to, I'm going to try to do today, I might get a little fiery towards the end, but we're going to pull out a couple of practical things from this, three very practical things from chapter 25 that is very short. We'll get through it very, very quickly, but there's a couple of nuggets that I really think are worth examining and looking at for our, our, our everyday life, Okay. So that's my goal today. All right, so you should have a handout in front of you. If you don't, if you have a smartphone, the Experience Community app, it's the, the talk of the tech world, right? You can download that for free, <laughs> at least within our church, it's the talk of the tech world. But anyways, you can download that for free if you click on service times and then sermon notes, everything is up there. If you have a Bible, we are in the 25th chapter of the fifth book of the New Testament, all right? We're going to go through it pretty quick. It won't take us that long. We'll kind of hang out at the end a little bit and talk about some stuff, and, and um, we'll see where the Lord takes us, and hopefully you can get out and enjoy your day a little bit before it rains. So, Lord Jesus, God, we love you. God, we thank you. We praise you. Lord, um, thank you so much for the nation we live in. God, it's not perfect, and, and, and we know that, Lord, but God, it is good, and, and you have blessed us, and Lord, we have tremendous freedoms, and we're, we're so grateful for those freedoms, God. Lord, we pray that you bless every church in our city, bless every non-profit in our city. God, keep your hand on us today, Lord, and, and, and open up our eyes and open up our ears. And Lord, not only let us hear what you have to say, Lord, let us apply what you have to say and apply this to our everyday living. God, we love you and we thank you and we give you all the glory and we hope that this makes you proud. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're in chapter 25. I'm going to read a little bit and we'll break it down. Here we go. So three days after Festus arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. 
the chief priests and the leaders of the Jews presented their case against Paul to him, and they appealed, asking for a favor against Paul that Festus summon Paul to Jerusalem. They were, in fact, preparing an ambush along the road to kill him. Festus, however, answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself was about to go there shortly. Therefore, he said, let those of you who have authority go down with me and accuse him if he has done anything wrong. So there's this transition. We talked about this a little bit last week. From one governor, a guy named Felix, to another governor, a guy named Festus. Now, Festus was a politician, and I don't mean that to sound derogatory, but he acted like a politician. And the first thing that came off derogatory, didn't it? Anyways, he, he came into this area, and he wanted to solidify a relationship with his subjects, which were mostly Jews, right, in the area of Judea, which was the southern part of Israel. So he talks to them, and politicians, Roman politicians, had to create some kind of a relationship with the Jews. The Jews didn't like the Romans, Romans didn't like the Jews, but they had to learn to work together, or it would just be, it would be a nightmare governing these different Jewish areas, right? So this is a way of looking out for himself a little bit. So to get a sense of the most important city in his region, or to get an, uh, an idea of his region, he goes to Jerusalem, and while he's there, the Jewish leaders talk to Festus and say, hey, you have this guy, Paul. He's been in custody in Caesarea for a couple of years. Why don't you just bring him back to Jerusalem and we can try his case here? What they really wanted to do is they wanted to kill Paul. After two years, they still can't let it go, right? So they wanted to get him back to Jerusalem so he wouldn't make it to Jerusalem. They could ambush him and they could assassinate Paul. Now, here's the thing about Festus. We're going to learn that Festus falls into the political traps, right? But what we see about Festus and what we know about Festus historically is he was not a bad politician. Um, he wasn't corrupt. Uh, uh, he, was, uh, he was, as far as politicians go, he was one of the better ones. He was honest and he was capable. The Jewish leadership, on the other hand, was extremely corrupt. And they had no, uh, no, no bashfulness at all about not only asking favors, probably trying to bribe Festus, but this was a plot to kill somebody. And though it seems like Festus could really care less about Paul, Festus does care about the law. He does care about order. So he's going to do things by the books. He's going to do it the right way, as we're going to see here soon. So when he had spent no more than eight or ten days among them, he went to Caesarea. The next day, seated at the tribunal, he commanded Paul to be brought in. When Paul arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him and brought many serious charges that they were unable to prove. When Paul made his defense, neither against the Jewish law nor against the temple nor against Caesar have I sinned in any way. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, replied to Paul, are you willing to go to Jerusalem to be tried, uh, be tried before me there on these charges? Paul replied, I am standing at Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews as even you yourself know very well. If then I did anything wrong and I'm deserving of death, I'm not trying to escape death, but if there is nothing to what these men accuse me of, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. 
Then after Festus conferred with his council, he replied, you have appealed to Caesar and to Caesar you will go. So after being in Jerusalem, Festus, and speaking to the leaders there, he now goes back to Caesarea and he says, hey, bring me Paul. We're going to do yet another trial for Paul. Now, the picture that Luke paints, I, I love the way Luke writes this. He almost gives us this sense. There's Paul, there's this decent politician, Festus, and there's almost like this group of ravenous wolves, these Jewish leaders that are hurling insults and they're hurling serious charges against Paul. I love what Luke writes. They're charges that they had no ability to prove. There was no substantial evidence. So the charges were that Paul was breaking the law, he was defiling the temple, and that he had caused treason against Rome. So Paul not only denies these, but for the very first time in all of his trials, he says, I have not done anything to you, I haven't done anything to the temple, and I have not done anything to Caesar. I have not sinned in any manner. So what we see from Paul and what we've seen from Jesus in the Gospels is there is a time for the Christian to remain silent. This is going to sound very harsh. Guys, I don't mean it to sound like this. I'm not like a violent person or anything. There are some people that if you just let them run their mouths enough, they will slit their own throats. Do you guys know the kind of people I'm talking about? Everyone has that one person in the office. We don't, right? But, you know, some people have that one, have that one person in the office that is so hateful and so mean, and you want to stand up and be like, guys, isn't this dude a jerk, right? You want to say that. But if you will just be quiet long enough, that person will let it be clear to everyone that they're a jerk. Do you, do you guys get what I'm saying? Some people, we don't have to say anything. Some people just paint themselves in a corner. There are other times, though, when we do need to stand up. There are some times when we need to either come to our own defense, and one of the reasons why it's important that we sometimes come to our own defense is we represent Jesus Christ. So if someone in your office is spreading a rumor that you're doing something unethical, you don't always need to say silent. Sometimes you need to stand up and say, that's not true. If you have some kind of proof, bring it, but, but you don't, and that's not okay. And the reason why we do that is if people know that we're followers of Christ, we have a reputation, not just our reputation. We have the repu reputation of the church and ultimately the reputation of Christ that we are also defending. And sometimes we need to stand up and say things are wrong. Jesus actually modeled this for us. There was a point during Jesus's trial and it says in the gospels, Jesus remained silent. He didn't say that much. But there was one point in John, it mentions this, where they have him on trial, a man runs up and hits Jesus. Jesus takes the shot. He looks at him and says, if I've done something wrong to you, prove it. But if I haven't, why did you hit me? Why did you do this? And what it did, it didn't stop the, the, the execution that was about to take place, but for that one individual, it shut that man down. It stopped that beating from that one man. So we see sometimes we're silent. Sometimes we have to be vocal. So Festus wanted to do the Jews a favor. Again, he's a politician, right? And doing the Jews a favor would help him politically. That'd be a good start for this politician in this area. So he started to compromise. We notice earlier he told the Jews, I'm not going to send Paul to Jerusalem. Now in front of them with Paul in the room, he says, hey, Paul, if you're so innocent, would you mind if we take you to Jerusalem and try you there? And this would have been exactly what the Jews wanted, right? They were going to kill him. They would have ambushed him. And so Paul, being a very smart man, 
He knows, I'm never going to make it to Jerusalem if this happens. So he's going to have to stand up and he's going to have to shut this conversation down. So Paul was not only a little vocal about his objection in Jerusalem, he was pretty blunt about it. He said, listen, I am standing where you guys have brought me to be tried. This is where I am legally supposed to be. He says, not only that, he says, Festus, you know that I'm innocent. If you weren't here a couple of weeks ago, the way that Festus knows that Paul is innocent is one of the, the, the Roman officers, Claudius, wrote a letter saying that Paul was innocent. So Paul knew that his destiny was in Rome. It wasn't his time to die. It wasn't his time to go back to Jerusalem. God wanted him in Rome. So he was not wrong in being angry at the situation. It was a righteous anger because of the corruption and because he was afraid, if you will, that God's will would not be done. So he stood up and he fought against it in his righteous anger. And so Paul, though Paul had done nothing deserving of death, he makes that clear, Paul also makes it clear that he's not afraid of death. And so Paul looked at the situation and he knew he had no other conclusions to come to. He didn't know what else to do. So he's going to play his trump card. He is a Roman citizen and he knows that if any Roman citizen has, they have the right to appeal their case to Caesar, just like we would appeal a case to the grand jury in the United States, that he could go around the governor and that by law, he would have to be given his time in front of Caesar. So once a Roman citizen has done this, there's no turning back. You are going to go see Caesar. Now, let me tell you a little bit about the Caesar during Paul's time. He was a guy named Nero. Anyone who's done any study of Roman history, Nero was bat crap crazy. Can I say that? That's how Christians get around swearing. So Nero was nuts, right? <laughs> I make myself laugh sometimes. Anyways, Nero was nuts. Just to give you an idea of how nuts Nero was, two examples. One, this is the man that set his own city on fire because he hated the Christians and he wanted to blame the Christians. So he set Rome on fire and said, I didn't do it, it was the Christians, which started Roman persecution against the Christians. Another, probably the craziest thing about Nero, Nero was suicidal at age 30. He wanted to kill himself, didn't have the guts to kill himself, so he forced his secretary to murder him. That's crazy, right? That's what this guy did, and this is the guy that Paul was going to stand in front of. So what's interesting is this, it's not that Paul wanted to stand in front of Nero, per se. Paul wanted to stand in front of the law, the justice. He wanted to stand in front of the most important legal system in the world, and he wanted to share his testimony and share the news about Jesus Christ, okay? So several days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived in Caesarea and paid a courtesy call on Festus. Since they were staying there several days, Festus presented Paul's case to the king, saying, there's a man who was left as a prisoner by Felix. When I was in Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews presented their case and asked that he be condemned. I answered them that it is not the Roman custom to give someone up before the accused faces the accusers and has an opportunity for a defense against the charges." So when they had assembled here, I didn't delay. The next day, I took my seat at the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought in. 
The accusers stood up, but brought no charge against him of the evils I was expecting. Instead, they had some disagreements about him, about their own religion, and about a certain Jesus, a dead man that Paul claimed to be alive. Since I was at a loss in a dispute over such things, I asked him if he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding these matters. But when Paul appealed to be held for trial by the emperor, I ordered him to be kept in custody until I could send him to Caesar. King Agrippa said to Festus, I'd like to hear the man myself. And Festus replied, tomorrow you will hear him. Now, here we get into some interesting characters here. King Herod Agrippa, Herod Agrippa, was the king of the Jews, okay? Now, before leaving for Rome, this king and his sister, which was also his lover, showed up to pay a courtesy call. Yeah, let me tell you about Bernice for a second. So Bernice, before she became a lover of her brothers, weird, right? Um, before that, she was married to her uncle. And she, like, they weren't even from like West Virginia or anything. They were from a whole nother part of the world. <laughs> I said Kentucky at the other services and they booed me a lot. So I'm like, maybe I'll use another redneck state. So anyways, um, <laughs> I should have said like Utah or something and you guys would have like been okay with that because we're in the, I'm just going to stop. So anyways, <laughs> Herod was just a figurehead. Herod had no power. In fact, he was, he was basically, they called him the curator of the temple. King Herod of the Jews to the Romans was basically just like a consultant. Hey, what are the Jewish religious people doing? That's, that's essentially all he was worth to the Romans. So he had no power. And Festus tells King Herod that the case about Paul was, was totally unexpected. He goes, man, I expected to hear a trial about treason or breaking laws, and they didn't talk about breaking laws and treason, really. They talked about this guy, Jesus. It boils down to the division, the hatred, the argument was about this dead man that Paul claims resurrected from the dead. Now, this brings up this fact. The identity of Jesus Christ has been and will always be the most divisive topic in the world. It has always been. Ever since Jesus walked the face of the earth, it has always been the most divisive topic. People love Jesus the man. It's hard to say anything bad about Jesus the man. Even the most avid atheist can look at the Bible and read the gospel. And if they believe in a historical Jesus, it's hard to say anything bad about a guy who was an advocate for women, who loved uh, widows and orphans, who helped the poor. Like, it's hard to speak anything bad about that guy. But whenever you say that man was God on earth, that's when it becomes divisive. Do you know why? Because if we accept that Jesus was God on earth, we also have to accept the teachings of Jesus, which means then we are held to a standard. And people don't like that. People don't like to be held to a standard. The topic of Jesus, I give you my word, will be the most divisive topic you will ever get into a conversation with. Let me go a little bit further. Jesus said, you're either for me or against me. Jesus also said that he brought a sword not the same kind of sword that Muhammad brought, a sword of conquest and domination. Jesus brought a sword that says, this is right and this is wrong and there is nowhere in between. It's a very divisive topic, very divisive topic. So what ends up happening now in this saga of Paul is it has been reduced down, it has been boiled down to Jesus. Jesus is the dividing topic. And Festus, this Roman governor, he was basically saying, 
I don't know what the heck to do with this. What in the heck is going on here? This guy believes in this, this other guy that died and was resurrected from the grave. Now, one of the reasons that was so hard for Festus to comprehend is one, Festus was a pagan. The other thing is, in Festus's time in the Roman Empire, they believed Caesar was God. If any man on earth was God, it's Caesar. And now that seems crazy to us, doesn't it? You're going to see where I'm, this is, I'm throwing out a hook here. It would seem audacious and nuts for us in the 21st century to believe that we would think a political leader could save us. Right? It's crazy. So again, the conversation about Jesus being God makes us decide, is Jesus our savior? Is he our salvation? Do we want Jesus Christ and his teachings and his principles? Or do we like certain things about Jesus, but we really find our security and hope in earthly leaders, in earthly governments, and in earthly systems? Listen, I'm gonna, I'm gonna let the cat out of the bag because my, my level of care is just, just not extremely high right now. I have not voted for the last two presidents. I think I said that last, last service, right? And you're, you're still here, so thank you. Anyways, though I didn't vote for the last two presidents, I respect them. I've had the opportunity to be in the same room with both of them, which is kind of neat. Anyways, I won't get into that. But, but I, I, I respect them greatly. Now, I remember watching the 2016 elections. And just to let you know, I didn't vote for Hillary either. I'm just throwing that out there. I guess you can keep like cutting them down and you can find out. Anyways, I remember when the 2016 elections were done, seeing people weeping like the world was coming to an end. And I watched that on TV and I told my wife, I said, that's, that's insane. Whenever we put that much stock in a human being, we are destined to be let down. Whether you're a Trump guy or a Hillary person or whatever the case may be, when you start thinking that an individual on planet Earth can save you and give you hope and peace, you have lost your mind because they will inevitably let you down. There is one person that can give you hope and peace, and it's not a Republican, it's not a Democrat, it's not a world leader, it is Jesus Christ. Now, do I respect world leaders? Absolutely, because Romans 13 tells me to. I respect them greatly, and I pray for any man or woman that leads this country. I pray for them, and I respect them, but I do not think they're my Savior. That's crazy, guys, and you are destined to be let down, okay? Moving on. <laughs> so the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the auditorium with the military commanders and prominent men of the city. When Festus gave the command, Paul was brought in, and then Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has appealed to me concerning him, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he should not live any longer. I found that he had not done anything deserving of death, but when he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after this examination is over, I may have something to write. Look at this last verse. This is crazy. For it seems unreasonable for me to send a prisoner without indicating the charges against him. Well, duh, right? 
It seems unreasonable for me to send this guy to court and imprison him when we don't even know what the charges are. Yes, that's a little unreasonable. So it's interesting. There is essentially at the end of chapter 25 a circus. There's all these kinds of who's who in this area. You have the king is in town, the king of the Jews. You have this Roman governor. You have all these prominent leaders and King Agrippa and King Herod and and his sister, lover, whatever. They walk in and it says, Luke writes, with great pomp. They walk in with their entourage, right? They're like dressed to the nines. There are all the paparazzis out there. It's on Facebook Live. I mean, all this stuff is going on. They enter into the auditorium. The military commanders, the prominent men of the city are there. Now, here's what's interesting. No one in the room had any control over Paul's fate. Paul has already appealed to Caesar. So there's only one person that could seal his fate, and that was Caesar. But they were all just there to see this spectacle. Festus, again, was a politician. And he thought this was a good political stunt, right? He's a new politician. He gets all the big wigs from the area in this room. And Festus is going to paint this picture that he is just this lover of the law, that he's a, a keeper of justice and peace and order. And he exaggerates and he kind of lies a couple of times. He says, everyone wanted to kill Paul. Everyone didn't want to kill Paul. It was a small group of people. Everyone wanted to kill Paul. But I stood in and protected Paul. And when Paul made an appeal to Caesar, he says, I decided to let him go. He had no say so. Once a Roman citizen appealed, he had to go. So this politician started playing politics, right? And this, this, this verse at the very end I find fascinating. He basically brought him in front of all these people and said, hey, I'm about to send this guy to Caesar, but I don't really know why. Can you guys help me? Like, let's put down on paper, what did Paul actually do? And this last verse in, in chapter 25 highlights just how crazy all of these trials against Paul have been. It highlights how audacious and ridiculous and hypocritical all of these trumped up charges against him have become. So we're sending this guy to Caesar, but we don't know if he's done anything wrong. Of course it's unreasonable. Now, I hate to end on on a negative note. That's the way that the Lord has taken us this week. What we see at the end of this is that even the good ones let us down. Festus, historically speaking, was a good politician, a capable leader, and, and, and very good at what he did. But at the end of chapter 25, we see that he's just, just like the rest. He's looking out for himself. He's selfish. He's trying to advance his agenda. So we see that even a good leader, good by the world standards, buckles to selfish ambition, becomes hypocritical, especially if they are not connected with Jesus Christ. That even the best of us, listen, listen, and I'm not trying to sound like dramatic or, 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 or set you up for disappointment or anything. So if you put your stock in a human, humans will always let you down. Even the best humans, because we're flawed. It doesn't mean we're awful. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't respect people. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't have mentors and pastors and bosses or whatever the case may be. But if your hope lies simply in a man or a woman, you will always be let down. Always be let down. Three practical takeaways, okay? The first one is this. We learn that from Christ, and we also learn from Paul, 
in the life of a Christian, there's a time when we should just be quiet. We just need to be quiet. Let things play out. God will work it out. Those people will, will work out their own situations. Like, just, just let it go. There are other times when we need to stand up and we need to be vocal. There is a time for righteous anger. Now, how do we know when to use each? That's where the Holy Spirit comes into play. We have to be full of the Holy Spirit. We have to have the gift of discernment. We have to have the gift of wisdom. And when we have the gift of discernment, when we have the gift of wisdom, we'll know when to open our mouths and we'll know when to shut our mouths. But we have to be close to Jesus and we have to trust that he will show us when and where to handle these kinds of situations, okay? The next practical takeaway is this. If you are in this room and you are a Christian, you have to understand that the most divisive topic ever is Jesus. It will divide families. Some of you can testify to that. It will divide friendships. It is a very divisive topic. Now, here's what we need to understand as Christians. When discussing Jesus Christ, per Jesus' words, we either have to take him in his totality or not take him at all which means we either have to take this book for all it says or we have to scrap the entire thing. There is no middle ground with Jesus Christ. You're either in or you're out. And these are Jesus' words. This is his instructions. You're either for me or you're not for me. There's nowhere in between. See, what modern day, especially American Christianity, we've created kind of this middle ground. I'm a Christian. You know, I go to church. Jesus said that there's going to be a lot of you that approach him one day on the, when, he, when he's judging all of us as humans. And we're going to say, Jesus, we cast out demons in your name. And Jesus is going to say, yeah, but we never talked. I don't know you. We don't have a relationship with each other. It's not just about doing signs and wonders. It's not just about going to church. It's not just about paying your tithes. It's about having a relationship with Jesus Christ. You're either in or you're not. There's nowhere in between. The last thing is this. We learn from Festus that the goodness of this world is a smokescreen. <laughs> what I mean is this. The world has become masters at selling you a lie. The world has become masters at selling you the lie that if you can just have sex with as many people as you want, you're going to feel great about yourself. It's going to be awesome, right? Those of you who are old enough to remember the sexual revolution of the 60s, Hey, it's with whoever you want, whenever you want, wherever you want. It's awesome. It feels great. This is good. And then we see STD rates skyrocket. Then we see divorce rates skyrocket. Then we start seeing the effects of fatherless homes. We see the effects of abortion and we see the effects of unwanted pregnancies. And now we start to see that what we thought was good was just a lie. It was a trick. It was a fabrication. We have the world saying, if you could just make six figures, you'll be happy. If you just have money, everything will be good. That's why billionaires keep on working, because it's never enough. There's never a point where they say, okay, I've got $35 billion, we're good, right? They keep on making more money. Because the world has sold us a lie that if we just have money, that we'll be fulfilled. And that has been proven not to be the case. That if we can just be famous... Uh, Robin Williams, do you guys remember when he died? How shocking that was. This, this really just 
seemed like such a wonderful man, humorous and a good father and a good husband and like all these things, this movie star and was just this, but we found out that he was discontent to the point of suicide because without Christ, it's not enough. So there is this smoke screen, this, there's this illusion of this goodness, right? If you just drink this alcohol, or if you just smoke this dope, or if you just marry this woman, you'll never look at another woman again, which is funny. Most of the people that I work with that have sexual issues, lust issues, infidelity issues, most of them have beautiful wives. Because the trophy wife does not give you contentment. Because we must need something more than that. So here's the point. If we rely on the systems of the world, the economies of the world, the governments of the world, the culture of the world, the media of the world, the leaders of the world, if we rely on those things to give us hope and fulfillment and peace and contentment, not only will you be sadly disappointed in this life, you'll be drawn eternally away from the love of God. Some of you have bought into a lie that if I can just get in that neighborhood, if I can just drive that car, if I can just party more, if I could just travel more, nothing wrong with traveling, nothing wrong with a nice house, nothing wrong with a nice car, nothing wrong with being a Republican, nothing wrong with being a Democrat, nothing wrong with voting for a mayor or voting for a senator, nothing wrong with any of those things. But if you think your hope and fulfillment is going to come from the Democratic Party, if you think it's going to come from the seat of the presidency, if you think it's going to come from an economy or your home or anywhere else, the Bible says all these things will pass away. And one thing remains. One thing remains. Some of us have bought into a lie. And I give you my word, it will not bring you to fulfillment. From a guy, <laughs> I pursued the world relentlessly. And I tried to kill myself three times. It was only when I found Jesus Christ in the fall of 2002 that I finally felt that I was worth anything. Because my hope and my identity and my worth is not found in the things I obtain, the women I have sex with, the drugs I do, the alcohol I drink. It's not found in those things. It's found in the fact that I'm connected to my creator, that I know who my savior is, my hope. The only way to have peace is to be connected to the Prince of Peace. And some of us have bought into a lie. Listen, the Bible says that Satan is the God of this world. Not that he has control, but he is the God of this world is what the Bible says. Satan has one objective, according to the Bible, to steal, kill, destroy. So when the, when the world tells you that all these things that are antithetical to Jesus are good, it's a lie. They're designed to steal, kill, and destroy. But they've been packaged up so pretty. Would you bow your heads with me? Listen, I know, I know it's your three-day weekend. Um, Here's what I would like to encourage you with so, so I can leave you on a good note. Tomorrow, if you're hanging out with your friends or you're, you know, you're eating barbecue with your family or, or maybe you're just taking the day off and you're not doing anything, which sounds nice. 
take a couple of moments, sit back and really think about what's important. Sit back and think about the blessings that God has given us. Maybe even contemplate, what is my relationship to God? Do I, do I search after materialism? Do I think more about what house I'm living in and how much money I make than I do about the kingdom of God? Do I find my fulfillment in my looks or my job? Or... And then ask yourself, have those things given you the contentment that you want? Maybe tomorrow when you have a day off, maybe it's a good time to reflect, to ponder, to think, to pray. There's men and women up here at the front if you need prayer for anything. If you have any questions about faith, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus and, and maybe you don't know where to begin, come up here and why don't you ask one of these men or women. They can help you. They can give you some good answers and they can pray with you. If you have any needs in your life, please let these men and women pray for you. We also have communion all the way around you. That represents the body and blood of Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. The Bible says that God gave us his only son that if we would believe in him, we would never die but have everlasting life, real joy, real contentment, real hope. Everyone is welcome to take communion as long as they ask Jesus Christ to forgive them of their sins. Father, Lord, we love you. God, I pray blessings over everyone in this room, Father. Lord, God, just let us be honest with ourselves. If we've pursued other means of contentment and joy, God, forgive us. Lord, if we have been sucked into the lie, Lord, let us see the truth. Lord, let us see what is real. God, I pray, Lord, that we are happy with where we are. Lord God, not, not that we shouldn't grow or advance, but, but God, that we, we're appreciative of all the things that you've done for us, God. That we can step back, Lord, and like the word says, consider the lilies of the field, God. That we can think, that we can ponder, that we can pray. Lord Jesus, we love you, God. I pray, God, that everyone has a good day tomorrow, that they get to rest Thank you, Lord, for the freedoms of our nation and the men and women that died for that freedom, God. We pray, Lord, that you just keep us uh, fixated on you. We love you. We thank you. We praise you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you guys. You're welcome to help yourself.